Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight during this time as we read Matthew chapter 3 and hear your word preached. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In December 2019, in our Christmas sermon series, we preached through Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, and you can go back and listen to those sermons. Our intention from today, from this week forward, is to preach all the way through Matthew's gospel, from chapter 3 all the way through to the end, to read together this wonderful, beautiful, first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, of his death and his resurrection from the dead, written by a man called Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' apostles. I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, season for us as a church, and I'm really excited about preaching through the Gospel of Matthew together. And this morning, I'm preaching from Matthew chapter 3, where we're introduced to an extraordinary man called John. And I hope as I read Matthew 3, you'll see that John's lifestyle is extremely challenging to us. You'll see also that John's message is crucially important, but also challenging as well. It's a hard, challenging message that John the Baptist preaches. But I think most remarkable of all about John What you'll see is that John spent his entire life pointing to someone greater than himself. I think John could be described as a great man, and yet he spent his whole life pointing to Jesus Christ, whom he considered to be far mightier than himself. Let's read it together, shall we? Um, If you've got a Bible at home, turn to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. And if you haven't got a Bible at home, don't worry too much because the words will appear on the screen as I read them. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of. By the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, And they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. Let's begin by considering John the Baptist's lifestyle. I think we can all agree that the way John lived life wasn't ordinary. We're told in verse 1 that John came preaching in the wilderness. You know, there's a, there's a, a city, the city of Jerusalem, which is densely populated, but John chose to preach in the wilderness, where the population was sparsely populated. Seems like an odd choice to me. In verse 4, we're told that John has a rather odd wardrobe. He wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist. In fact, John has chosen those clothes deliberately. He's dressing in exactly the same way as Elijah used to dress. Elijah is considered the greatest prophet in the Old Testament and John the Baptist chooses to copy the way Elijah dresses. So John the Baptist is dressing like a prophet of the Old Testament in verse 4. We also learn in verse 4 that John had a rather strange diet. He eats locusts and wild honey. Essentially, John is eating the food that he can find in the wilderness. He's finding wild honey and he's finding locusts and that's what he's choosing to eat. It's a poor man's diet that John the Baptist is eating. Perhaps the, the craziest thing of all is despite this wholly unattractive lifestyle that John is living, it verges on crazy for me, the way John is choosing to live his life. His ministry is hugely impactful. His ministry is hugely successful. Crowds, in verse 5, gather. They come from the city of Jerusalem and they come from the whole region of Judea and they come from the whole region surrounding the River Jordan. Crowds of flocks of people are coming to hear John's preaching and to confess their sins and to be baptised by him in the River Jordan. It's amazing, really, how successful John is being considering the way he's living life. And as, I, as we think about John's lifestyle in Matthew chapter 3, there are two things that strike me. The first is this. John's ministry isn't successful because of great strategy or because he's presenting his message in an attractive way. But rather, John's ministry is successful because of God's providence. You know, the crowds are coming to hear John the Baptist, but they're not coming because John is a snazzy dresser. In fact, quite the opposite. He's a terrible dresser. Um, they're not coming because John has this great marketing plan to, to get lots of crowds to come and listen to him. In fact, quite the opposite. John's made a strategic mistake to preach in the wilderness rather than to preach in the city. It's not John's strategy or his dress sense that's drawing the crowds. Rather, John's ministry is successful 
because God has providentially appointed it to be successful. You can, you can see this explicitly in verse 3. In Matthew 3, verse 3, we're told that Isaiah the prophet, over 700 years before John was even born, Isaiah the prophet was given a message from God, and this prophecy, prophesied 700 years earlier, is fulfilled in John the Baptist's life and ministry. In other words, at least over 700 years before John was born, God had planned, had foreordained, had providentially decided that John the Baptist would come and he would preach this message and his ministry would be successful. John's ministry is successful because of God's plan. Now, I want us to know this as a church. Success in ministry is dependent upon God, not on us. Success in ministry is dependent on God, not on us. You know, when I use the word ministry there, I'm thinking about Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, Jesus Christ gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the pastor teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. So in that verse in Ephesians 4, it's not the church leaders who do the works of ministry. It's all the saints, the church leaders, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. What they do is they equip all the Christians for works of ministry. And so, do you know, if you're a Christian listening to this video this morning, God has appointed works of ministry for you to do. You are a minister of the gospel. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel. Every, every Christian has works of service that God has chosen them to do. Every Christian has groups of people whom God has appointed you to speak and tell the gospel to. Every Christian is a minister, not just the church leaders. In fact, the church leaders, their job is to equip others to minister. And so when we think of the success of John's ministry, and we, and we know that the success of John's ministry depended on God, not on John, we, we, to apply that to our own lives, we need to think about our own ministry and know that success in the ministry that God has given you and me depends on God, not on us. That's the first thing that strikes me, that John's success in ministry depended on God. The second thing that strikes me when we think about John's lifestyle is John's wholehearted obedience to God's call on his life. God has called John to baptise people. So John the Baptist thinks, well, I'll do my ministry next to the River Jordan in the wilderness then. There's a good place to baptise people. If God's called me to baptise people, that's where I'm going to do it. God has called John to be a prophet. That's God's call on John's life. And so John goes as far as he can possibly go in living out this calling. He even dresses the way an Old Testament prophet dresses. He dresses like Elijah the prophet. And that's because he knows God's called him to be a prophet and he's doing everything he can. Even the way he looks, even the way he dresses, speaks to others about the call on his life that God has given him. God has called John to be a preacher in the wilderness. And so John decides 
to live a simple lifestyle with a poor man's diet. It, it would be a distraction to his mission if John had to keep traveling back to Jerusalem to pick up some nice food so that he could eat well. So instead he says, well, I'm just gonna eat the food that I find in the wilderness. And he probably wasn't paid in any way for this ministry. And so he's gonna have to live off what he can find in the wilderness. He, he's eating a poor man's diet. He's living a simplistic lifestyle in order to fulfill the call that God has placed on his life. You know. I can't help but read this story and read about John's lifestyle and be convicted of the luxurious lifestyles that we live in 2020 in Fairham and around the UK. John chose deliberately a poor man's diet, a simplistic lifestyle. And, and there's got to be something of that that's challenging us as Christians and the luxury that we live in this morning. All these details that Matthew includes in his gospel deliberately about John's life point to a man who is completely sold out to obey God's call on his life. John is giving everything. His diet changes so that he might fulfill God's call in his life. His dress sense changes so that he might fulfill God's call on his life. Where he goes is in obedience to God. When I think back over my own life, I can think of moments of simple yet wholehearted obedience to God where God moved in an amazing way. I'll just give you one example. When I was, I don't know, about 22, 23 years old, I was living in Watford and attending Christ First Watford, a New Frontiers church in the town of Watford. and. I wasn't a leader in that church at this point in any way, but I felt that as a church, we should be reading the Bible more. I think we were doing a thematic sermon series um, on a Sunday morning, and we were doing something thematic in life groups as well. And I just wanted to study the Bible with my fellow Christian brothers and sisters, and I I felt the Holy Spirit lead me to do something about it. And so I very simply obeyed and I went to the leaders of the church and I said I'd like to do a lead a bible study I'd like to open the bible with some of the people in Christ first would you would you let me set that up and they said go for it so we launched a bible study on a Sunday evening as part of the church I never led anything like that before so finding a venue and and getting a worship leader and writing the notes for the bible study and organizing different discussion tables leaders and all those kind of things all of that was new but I was just being obedient to to God and what God had put on my heart and just doing it and to be honest some things I did well and some things I did fairly poorly but each week we would gather on a Sunday evening we would read the Bible together we'd go through some questions together and then at the end of the kind of gathering I would stand up for 10-15 minutes and give a short talk on the passage of scripture that we just read and slowly more people came to this Bible study and until there was about 20 or so people gathering every Sunday evening to read the Bible, which was amazing in and of itself. But then God did something even more amazing. In one of our meetings, there's 20 people from our church sat down reading the Bible together when 20 more people walk in. In fact, it was the homeless community from the town of Watford just walk in all together. I've no idea why. They get some tea and coffee from the back and some a little bit of food. And then they sit down and start listening to us. And I feel another prod from the Holy Spirit. And so I decide to kind of end the Bible study and stand up and simply preach the gospel to these people who 
had never been to church before or very few of them had ever been to church before it was an amazing opportunity and these guys were engaging with me and asking questions and, and one of them was disagreeing with me but others were going yeah that makes sense that i understand it completely you know on that sunday evening because of simply just obeying wholeheartedly what god had given me to do i preached the gospel to 20 people none of whom had been to church in the last year many of whom had never been to church before in their lives more people heard the gospel as part of the bible study that i set up non-christians then it turned up on our Alpha course that year as a church. It was simply wholehearted obedience to God, and God moved and did something amazing in that. And so I'd encourage you to stop for a moment. Consider John the Baptist's lifestyle and ask yourselves these questions. What ministry has God given me? I'm one of the saints, I'm one of the Christians in Ephesians 4, so I, God has works of ministry for me to do. What are those works? Do I know that success, the success of that ministry depends on him, not on me? Am I wholeheartedly obeying God in that calling? Or are there worldly complications holding me back? Ask yourself this, do I need to adopt a more simple lifestyle like John the Baptist in order to wholeheartedly pursue God's calling in my life? At various times in our lives where Christians are, are called by God to make sacrifices, to give things up in order to more wholeheartedly follow Christ and fulfil God's call in our lives. Maybe this is one of those moments for you. God's got works of ministry for you to do. Do you need to live more simply in order to fulfil that calling? So we thought about John's lifestyle in Matthew 3, about God's providence over the success of John's ministry and about John's wholehearted obedience. I want to spend the rest of our time in this passage this morning thinking about John's message. The words John was preaching. There's kind of three, three sections of John's teaching in Matthew chapter 3. Firstly, there's a headline message in verse 2. And John's headline message in verse 2 is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to spend most of our time looking at verse 2. Then in verses 7 to 10, there's kind of another section of John's teaching. And this is a message of judgment given to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He begins that message of judgment by calling the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers. Thirdly, the crescendo of John's message in Matthew chapter 3 is found in verses 11 and 12, where Jesus points to Jesus, the one who is mightier than him, the one whose sandal John isn't even worthy to carry, the one who baptises not in water but by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at those three sections of John's message that he preaches, spending most of our time in verse 2. So have a look at verse 2 with me, where John preaches and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
I actually prefer, you won't hear me saying this very often, but I normally read the ESV version, but I actually prefer the NIV translation of this sentence where it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This same message is preached by Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17, and preached time and time again by the apostles throughout the book of Acts. So this is an absolutely fundamental sermon. This is a fundamental message right at the heart of Christianity. And we must understand this message that John is preaching. And you'll notice that the message, John's message in verse two has two parts. The first part is a command. The command is repent. And the second part of this sermon is a reason to obey the command. Repent is the command and the reason to obey it is because the kingdom of heaven has come near. We're going to start by thinking about that, that second part, the reason to obey the command, which says the kingdom of heaven has come near. What did John mean when he said that? Now, first thing we need to say is that this is a major theme of Matthew's gospel. Matthew references the kingdom of heaven 31 times in the, in the gospel of Matthew. 31 times in 28 chapters, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. There's one chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus tells seven parables and all of them are about the kingdom of heaven. And so by the end of this sermon series in Matthew, we're going to be experts as a church in the kingdom of heaven. So think of this sermon as kind of an introduction to that, the start of our journey of understanding what Matthew and what John meant when he spoke about the kingdom of heaven. Now, heaven will have been familiar to Matthew's readers because Matthew's readers were Jewish, they would know the Old Testament, and they would know heaven as the place where God dwells and where God reigns. Heaven is the place where God dwells and God reigns. Consider for a moment the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and so he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And one of the lines in that prayer says this, speaking to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication of that prayer is that God's reign in heaven is so supreme and complete that everything that is done in heaven, every thought that is thought, every word that is spoken, every deed that is done is in complete accordance with the pleasing will of God. The angels in heaven who surround God's throne and worship him in heaven, they have seen God's beauty. They have seen God's majesty. They know God's awesome wisdom and they know 
the goodness of God. They've tasted the goodness of God. And so the angels in heaven are pleased to always obey God's will in everything that they do. That's what it's like in heaven. God reigns so completely, so utterly that everything is done in accordance with his will in heaven. We desperately want that here on earth. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for a world where everyone all of the time acts in accordance with with God's will. We long for a world in which sin has been eradicated and people who are always obedient to the will of God, where people live with the love and selflessness commanded by God in Scripture. Now, what John is saying is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God has come near. And in one sense, he's saying that the time when all will obey and all and God's kingdom will truly be manifolded on the earth, it is, is coming closer. The time is drawing near. But also consider this verse in the Old Testament in, in Daniel 2, verse, 30, verse 44. So Daniel 2, verse 44 says this. Daniel prophesying or interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prophesies and says the kingdom of heaven shall break in pieces all the other kingdoms of the earth. Kingdoms built on pride and on selfishness. Kingdoms built on lies. Kingdoms built on ill-gotten gain will crumble before the God of heaven. Will crumble in the wake of the kingdom of heaven which is coming to earth. And so this is a powerful message that John is preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's saying this kingdom that's going to break all other kingdoms has come near to the earth. It's a, it's a powerful message John is preaching. It's a message of urgency. You must repent. I'm sure John must have said that. You must repent lest you be destroyed as a citizen of the kingdoms of this world. There are lots of kingdoms in this world, but the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when the kingdom of heaven comes, it will destroy these other kingdoms. And so if you're a citizen of any other kingdom other than the kingdom of heaven, you will be destroyed as God's kingdom is ushered onto the earth. You must repent, otherwise you will be destroyed. To repent means to return. John's Jewish listeners, and in fact all of humanity, were created by God our Father. But all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone in humanity, everyone in history, has rebelled in sin and disobedience and forsaken God. We've gone in our own direction, ignoring the good and perfect commands of our Lord and Father.
John's call to repent then is a call to return. It is a call to turn back to God whom we have forsaken. To repent is to change your mind about sin. To realise that sin is evil and that you yourselves have sinned. When someone repents, the the first thing they realise is that they've done things wrong and in doing things wrong they've forsaken God. To repent is to change your mind about Jesus. To understand that, that Jesus, he is God. To understand that Jesus is the king of the eternal kingdom of heaven and to believe that Jesus came to earth in order to save us from our sins. So when someone repents, they change their mind about sin. They realise that they themselves are a sinner, that they've done things wrong and they've forsaken God. They also change their mind about Jesus and they realise who he truly is, the Lord and King and Saviour of the world. And so to repent is to change direction. We've been walking in this direction, we've been sinning and suddenly our mind is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, as we, as we, as we change our mind about sin in Jesus Christ, we turn and we, and we think and say this, I will no longer walk this road. I will no longer walk this road pursuing the sinful, selfish, proud desires of my heart. Instead, I will follow and serve Jesus Christ. Repentance involves fleeing from wrath. You can see that in verse 7. When you change your mind in repentance, you realise that your sins are worthy of punishment and therefore every sinner stands under the wrath of God. And so repentance means thinking, I need to flee from God's wrath because of my sin. In verse 6, you can see that repentance includes confession of sin. You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to admit that in prayer to God. Say, yes, I have done things wrong, Lord God. I am I'm deserving of being punished by your wrath. I have disobeyed your commands. I have forsaken you. I haven't even spoken to you in, at any point in my life. Repentance involves, involves fleeing from wrath, confession of sin, and then baptism. Baptism is an act of repentance. It's an act of obedience to the commands of the Bible to symbolise the repentance that's happened in your heart. That baptism, where you're dunked into water and then raised back up again, is a public confession of your sin. It is, it's a public confession that you need to be washed clean from the things you've done wrong. And it's an act of obedience, obeying the commands of God. And so for many Christians, baptism is the first kind of act of obedience. You repent and then you immediately get baptised to symbolise that you've turned from your sin and now you're following Jesus Christ. A repentance, sorry, baptism is an act of repentance. Repentance also involves bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You can see that in verse 8, Matthew 3 Verse 8, if a person claims to have repented, claims to have turned from sin and turned to having faith in Jesus Christ, but their life looks identical to the way they were living before, it is likely that their their repentance was false repentance. Their faith, which they claim to have, is truly dead. Because people who have truly repented, people who truly believed in Jesus Christ, people who are truly following Jesus Christ, 
bear the fruit of love and mercy and selflessness in their own life. Their lives change dramatically. It's a radically different way of living to be following sin one day and then following Jesus the next day. That's a, that's a 180 degree turn in your life. The inclinations, your, the desires of your heart are completely and radically changed. Doesn't mean we never sin once we've repented, but it, it does mean our lives look radically different from the, when, what they did before. There are people within the church who have never truly repented. They've never truly felt sorry at their sin. They've never humbly recognised their sinful ways. They, they may say they have faith. They may sometimes look on the outside like they are a Christian. But they have never truly repented. And as a consequence, they will be destroyed with the kingdoms of this world under God's wrath when Jesus returns. Unless they do truly repent and turn from their sin to believe in Christ. Do it today. Repent today. If you're part of the church, you call yourself a Christian, but you're realising that actually you've never had that moment of changing your mind. You've never had that moment of, of feeling the guilt of sin. You've never had that moment of feeling like you're under the wrath of God. Turn, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of that sin and you will be saved. And if you've never been to church before and you're watching this video and this is the first sermon you've ever heard, but you're feeling in, in and of yourself, you're feeling inside an understanding that you have done things wrong, that you are a selfish person, that you are a proud person, that you need inner transformation. I say turn, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin and turn and follow Jesus. He will save you from your soul. He will welcome you into an everlasting kingdom with Jesus Christ as King. And in that sense, John is spot on when he says the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's spot on when he says that because the kingdom of heaven truly had come near in the person of Jesus Christ. The king of the kingdom had come to earth. The king of heaven, Jesus Christ, God the Son, God in human flesh had come to earth to begin the establishment of his kingdom on earth. When John says the kingdom of heaven has come near, what he really means is the king has come. And the inauguration of his kingdom will begin shortly. That's John's first, his headline message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In verses 7 to 10, John begins another section of teaching in direct response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who've come to listen to John's teaching. And he speaks directly to them and he starts by calling them brood of vipers. When he calls them brood of vipers, He's calling them the offspring of a snake. And when you understand the imagery of the snake or the viper or the serpent at the beginning of the book of Genesis, what John is really calling these Pharisees and Sadducees is offspring of Satan. You brood of vipers, John begins this message, or you offspring of Satan is a very blunt, offensive way 
of speaking to these people. And what he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they have committed the sin of presumption. In verse 9, the Pharisees presume that they're okay because they're Jewish, because they're children of Abraham. And so, and perhaps these Pharisees were thinking, well, I don't need to get baptized. I don't need to confess my sin. I don't need to repent or turn around. When the kingdom of heaven comes, I'm going to be fine because I'm a Jew. I'm, a, I'm an offspring of Abraham. But John says, no, you're an offspring of Satan. And if God needs true children of Abraham, and true children of Abraham are those who live in, who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God can, can take stones and can raise them up into the children of Abraham if he needs to. So just because you're Jewish, just because you're an offspring of Abraham in the, in the physical sense, does not mean you're okay. You also must repent. You must understand that you are under God's wrath. You must turn from your sin and believe in the one coming. And so I repeat this warning to people in the church. Do not presume you are saved because you were born to Christian parents. Do not presume you are saved because you go to church. Do not presume you are saved because you have great Bible knowledge. If you do not humbly, genuinely confess your sins and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, you will perish under God's wrath. For you are, without repentance, a child of Satan. You know, at the end of time, when we are judged by Jesus Christ, there will be many people who have been part of churches, who've grown up in the church perhaps. There'll be many people with good Bible knowledge who will perish under Jesus Christ's judgment because they have never truly repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've religiously relied on their own works to be saved. And that is not what this Bible teaches us. This Bible teaches us that we cannot save ourselves by our works. We cannot save ourselves by being born in the right family. We cannot save ourselves by um, going to church multiple times. We cannot save ourselves just by learning verses from the Bible. No, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, through this moment of repentance, turning from a life of sin, turning to God, believing in Christ and receiving forgiveness for the things that we have done wrong. In verses 11 and 12, John's final bit of teaching in Matthew chapter 3, there is some wonderful news for true Christians. I love the humility of John the Baptist in verse 11, where he says, I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. You know, I wonder whether you've ever felt that kind of humility. Uh, I think some people in the church kind of think, Jesus must love them because they're so fantastic and there's kind of a pride among some Christians but there's no pride with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, I'm not even worthy to carry this man's sandals. I'm not even worthy to carry Jesus's sandals. That's how much greater than I he truly is. And the reason Jesus is far greater than John is this. John baptized with water but Jesus 
baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It is the big difference. And the reason why Jesus is so superior to John. Water only washes the outside of a person. When you're dunked into the River Jordan, the water is able to wash your outside, but it can't do anything about your inside. That's why water baptism cannot, in and of itself, save anyone. If the outside is clean, but the inside is still dirty, despicable and sinful, that person is not fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. So water baptism in and of itself cannot save anyone. But Jesus, in his mightiness, does not baptise with water. He baptises with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit, he is a spiritual person, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And when Jesus baptises with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't wash, wash the outside of a person, but cleanses and transforms the inner person. The Holy Spirit, when he comes upon a person, changes our hearts from the inside out. If you're realising, as you're watching this sermon this morning, if you're realising that right now there is a sinfulness inside of you, there's a selfishness or a pride in you that you don't like. And I say the same myself, there's sin in me that I don't like. If you're realising this for the first time, pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because when the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus Christ, he cleanses and purifies you from the inside out. If you're a Christian, you've already received the Holy Spirit, but you know that there's sin still in your life. Pray now for another filling of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Purify us, change us by the work of the Spirit, we pray. Because Jesus is the King who gives us the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, who cleanses and purifies our hearts. This is how the kingdom of heaven truly comes into the world. First, the King arrives in Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walks on the earth. The King of heaven is here in the flesh on the earth. Then, after Jesus has died on the cross, he's been raised from the grave and he has ascended into heaven. Then the kingdom of heaven comes in the hearts and lives of Christian believers. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he, he brings down, he breaks the old kingdoms of our hearts. He enters in our heart violently and destroys the idols of our hearts and sets Jesus up as king of our hearts. Do you see that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We call it regeneration. We call it new life. We call it new birth. When we say I'm a born again Christian, we're saying the Holy Spirit has come and destroyed the old kingdoms of my heart and raised up a new king in my heart, King Jesus Christ. 
And so that's why we can say the kingdom of heaven happens outwardly. When Jesus came, it was an outward thing that happened for all the world. And one day Jesus will come again and he will transform the whole earth so that the kingdom of heaven truly and completely is here on the earth. It's an outward thing. But the kingdom of heaven is also happening in me as a Christian. The kingdom of heaven is bubbling away in my heart because the Holy Spirit has come and changed me. The kingdom of heaven is here in me right now. And if you're a Christian, the kingdom of heaven is happening in you right now because in you as a Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. So in Matthew chapter three, we see that John's lifestyle is challenging. His wholehearted obedience and the simplicity of his life is very, very challenging to us. But perhaps his messages, perhaps his preaching is even more challenging because John the Baptist is not afraid to draw lines. He draws a line between the wheat and the chaff. The wheat receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit and is gathered into the barns of heaven, into eternal life with God forever and ever. The chaff is burned with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. John draws a line between trees who bear fruit in keeping with repentance and those trees that do not bear fruit in keeping, in keeping with repentance. The trees that bear no fruit are cut down and destroyed. John draws a line between those who have repented of their sin, who have confessed their sin, who have been baptised and those who haven't. These people are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and these people are not. And so John draws a line there as well between the citizens of heaven who will live forever in the eternal kingdom that God is establishing here on earth and citizens of worldly, earthly kingdoms. They will be destroyed with those kingdoms when God's kingdom comes in Jesus's second coming and breaks into pieces the kingdoms of this world. And so I hope and pray this morning you will be on the right side of those lines. I pray you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit, that you will repent, that you will change your mind and realise how sinful you've been in your past and change your mind and realise that Jesus is King and Lord over all and therefore turn your life around from walking in the paths of sin to walking in the footsteps of Jesus. I pray you will be baptised in water, this outward symbol of the, the spiritual baptism happening in your heart. I pray you will know that God has given you a ministry. If you're a Christian, God has given you a ministry. And just like John, the success of that ministry does not depend on you, but depends on God. And therefore that frees us to live simple but wholehearted obedient lives towards God. How different would our lives look if everything we did was just in wholehearted obedience to God? Even when he asks us to do things that are a little bit difficult or a little bit crazy. Let's follow the example of John the Baptist here. Live our lives in simple obedience to God, always pointing to the one who is greater.
my job as leader of Christchurch Fairham is not to proclaim the greatness of Duncan Sills. If it were, these sermons would be boring, rubbish and probably full of things that I've made up. Rather, my role, my ministry and your ministry is to proclaim the greatness and the might of Jesus Christ, the one who is ushering in a new kingdom that will never be broken, the kingdom that will ultimately break into pieces all the other kingdoms on the earth. We are to proclaim the greatness of King Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit to bring inner transformation, who takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh, who takes our hearts of sinful desires and tunes them to be obedient to God in heaven so that one day, on the earth the kingdom of heaven will be completely ushered in and it will be all everything will be done in accordance with god's perfect and pleasing will and we'll live in this kingdom of love and selflessness and obedience to jesus christ the king we will live in paradise here on the earth let it start now in our hearts that we might be selfless and loving and obedient in all that we do as we long and look to the future coming jesus's second coming where the kingdom will be ushered in in its completeness i say to you if you do not believe in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If you're comfortable, why don't you stretch out your hands as though receiving from God as I pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon each and every one of us. Lord Jesus Christ, you are described as the one who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. And so I pray right now you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon each and every person watching and participating in this service. Lord God, we need changing from the inside out. A bath or being dunked in the River Jordan is not going to clean us from our inside problems. And so we pray Give us the gift of the Holy Spirit for the first time for those people who have never believed in Jesus Christ and for the upteenth time for those who have been Christians for a long, long time. Pour out your Holy Spirit, change our hearts, tune our hearts to be more Christ-like today, I pray, that we might walk in his footsteps. Lord, I ask that we would be wholehearted in our obedience to you. Lord, I pray we might know the calling you have placed upon our lives. Lord, we might know the works of ministry that you have appointed for each of us to do. And Lord, I pray we would throw aside anything that hampers. I pray we would live simple lives, that we might potentially eat these strange but simple diets in order to follow the call of God upon our lives. Lord, free us from things that are holding us back. Help us live in the spirit. Help us walk in the spirit. Help us live in freedom, wholly devoted to serving you and proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray now anoint people with boldness in the Holy Spirit to proclaim the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.